Well, good morning, Cornwall Church. It is good to have you here. Those of you here in Bellingham, so glad that you're joining us today. Those of you in Skagit, glad you're with us today with Pastor Brian and the gang down there. Those of you in Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, as always, it's nice to have you uh, tune in with us every week. And those watching online at the live stream, glad that you're with us as we start a brand new series today that will take us uh, through the summer and into, it's hard to believe, into September. Um, About five years ago, just over five years ago, five years ago in May, May of 2012, I took a trip uh, of people from Cornwall to Israel, and on the way home from that trip, we actually had an extension in Rome, and we spent four days in Rome, and uh, Rome is a pretty amazing city. Uh, This was 2012. I have my Western Washington National Champions. You'll remember the Vikes won that year, the National Championship. That was Okay, well, it was an exciting time for them at that, at that moment. But Rome is an incredible city. I wish we could all go there. The, the amount of history, uh, in human history, the impact. I mean, just going there and seeing the ruins of the Colosseum, going to the Forum, uh, the Sistine Chapel, on and on. It's just the, the catacombs is absolutely amazing trip. But the history is more than just the ruins. If you think about history, if you were awake during this portion of history, I mean, things like Julius Caesar and Octavia and Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and that whole drama that happened. Nero and, and his violining playing during the fire and, and Constantine. There, there's so much in human history related to this city. But it's not just human history. You think about in the history of Christendom, in the church. I mean, I don't know if you've ever really given this any thought. Why is it that Rome became the central point of all Christianity for many, many hundreds of years? Why is it that Rome became that point and not Jerusalem? Jesus never went to Rome. His disciples were never from Rome. How is it that there's Rome as the center of the Christian church? Why are they referred to as Roman Catholics and not Jerusalem Catholics? We may go into that in the next couple of weeks. But why is it that, that Rome became the seat, the, the seat of the, of the holy Catholic church, that, that the Vatican Vatican City, Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, all those things happen in Rome. It's significant in church history as well, and it's significant even when you get into theological thought, because our belief system is greatly shaped as well, because there was a document that was put together for the followers of Jesus who lived in Rome in the first century, and it was given to you, and then this document made its way into Scripture. It's, we refer to it as a book of the Bible. That book of the Bible is referred to as... You guys are so sharp. It's Romans. And this book of Romans is an amazing, amazing book. It is absolutely rich with theology. It is liberating in this book of Romans. It is incredibly profound and deep, mysterious, even confusing at times. This book of Romans is extensive. This book of Romans is beautiful and glorious. This book of Romans has been and is incredibly impactful and influential. I would suggest that possibly Romans is the most influential book in the Scripture. Not that that it's most important, but maybe has been one of the most influential books in Scripture, in theological thought, and in church history. Let me give you a case in point. 500 years ago this year, 1517, so this is the... Quint, quint, quincin, the 500th anniversary. What's the word? Quince, quincentennial. I'm so smart. This is the quincentennial anniversary of something profound that happened in 1517, uh, October 31st. There was this man 
He was a theology professor. He was a monk. He was a priest. He had devoted his entire life to the church. And as he was studying the book of Romans, he began to see this inconsistency with what the scripture said and what the church was teaching and what the church was practicing. And it really bothered him. And he began to study it more and he began to see what about the authority of God's word and what are these things that we're doing and what are these things that we're teaching and what are these things that we're practicing and what are we telling our people? And it got to the point where this, this, this priest, this monk, Martin Luther is his name, he began to write out these differences and, and he felt like he needed to address these issues, to confront these issues, in, in essence, to protest the practices and the teachings of the church that went contrary to scripture. Now get this very clear, Martin Luther loved the church. He had devoted his life to the church. He'd given himself completely to the church. He didn't want to be some kind of a rebel that would split the church. He just said, we need to get back to the truth of God's word and what it says, especially here in Romans. So he wrote this document called the 95 Theses, and he nailed it to this door in Wittenberg. And, and it caused such a, an uproar that he was called to task on this. And in, actually later, in 1521, at a thing called the Diet of Worms, which the inner junior high boy in me loves, it has nothing to do with what you're thinking right now, but at the Diet of Worms, he was actually excommunicated. But he said, this is where I stand. I can do no other. I'm standing on the word of God. And he continued to write about Romans. He continued to, he translated the Bible from Latin into German. He wrote, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther. And those who followed him, it caused a, a schism in the church, a split. It was not his desire. But those who followed him were referred to as Lutherans. And this movement became the protest and reformation, the Protestant Reformation. That's where that happened. And it happened primarily because of the truth found in the book of Romans. Fast forward 200 years. 200 years, a little bit over 200 years later, there's a young man named John Wesley. He's frustrated in his religious spiritual journey. He feels like it's empty, it's, it's lost. He's in a gathering of Moravians in London at a place called Aldersgate. And in that gathering, someone reads Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And it begins to talk about these, these truths found in this book. And John Wesley said at 845, very specific, at 845, my heart was strangely warmed and it transformed his life. And he and his brother Charles set off on, on this revival that literally led hundreds of thousands of people to Jesus. This incredible revival. And it was sparked by this truth found in the book of Romans. And over and over again throughout history, there have been reformations and revivals on individual levels, on family levels, on church levels, because of this book of Romans. And here's the exciting thing, is that the very words that transformed Martin Luther's life and changed the whole history of Christianity, the same words that sparked a fire in John Wesley and, and brought about this incredible revival, the same words powered by the same Holy Spirit are the words in the Holy Spirit that we're going to engage with over the course of this summer. Yeah, very fired up about this. Martin Luther said this book was so important. This is what he said. He said, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word. Aren't you glad he's not your pastor? He says, you ought to memorize this book. It's only got 16 chapters. What's wrong with you, you slackers? He said, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, 
For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. He says, yes, fill your mind with the word of God, but come back to the book of Romans every day for the rest of your life. That, that was how important, that's how profound it was in his thinking. And we're going to spend 14 weeks looking at this book. This may be the longest contiguous sermon series we've ever done at this church. 14 weeks we're going to look at the book of Romans. But I think we're just going to scratch the surface. My friend Bill Giovanetti, he's a pastor in Redding, California. He did a series on the book of Romans a few years ago, and he entitled it The Theory of Everything. And his series, I kid you not, his series went for 67 weeks. But that's nothing. John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, covered the book of Romans in, I kid you not, 225 sermons. We're doing 14. I was talking with Bill Gilfillan this week, our Pastor, Pastor Bill, about this whole thing. And he says, Bob, and I thought this was just a, a beautiful picture. He says, it's like the Grand Canyon. He says, you can drive up to the south rim of the Grand Canyon in your car park and experience the majesty, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and never be the same because you've seen it. And you can get out of your car and you can walk along that trail on the, on the south rim and look back and forth and you'll see more of the Grand Canyon and you'll be even greaterly, greater transformation in your life. You could take a little bit of time and go down the Bright Angel Trail and head down to Indian Wells. Or you could even go farther down to Phantom Ranch, down in the base of the Grand Canyon. Or you could even go rim to rim or come up on the Kaibab Trail. Or you could spend 12 days rafting down through the Colorado River, the 200 and some miles that go through the Grand Canyon. Or you could spend every day for the rest of your life trying to, trying to understand every little ravine, every little piece of the Grand Canyon. No matter what, you still experience the Grand Canyon. So when you look at it that way, this book of Romans like this Grand Canyon, what we're going to do over the course of summer is like a day hike. There's absolutely no way we can cover it all. We're not going to hit every verse. We're not going to answer every question. We're not even going to hit every theme. We just simply don't have the time. As you begin to dig into this, you see that it is so rich in theology, so deep, that you understand why John Piper would spend 225 weeks covering this book. I mean, if you just simply took the opening greeting and salutation where Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, I could spend our entire time on this verse today talking about what does it mean to be loved by God, finding our identity, not in what we've done or what we've achieved or what we think, but in who we are in Christ because God's poured out his, his unconditional love to us and that love and our identity in his love changes the purpose of our life because we've been called, we've been hand-selected, we've been picked, we've been chosen to be saints. And we think, well, that's not me. I don't have a halo and all that. To understand what saints are, saints are those who've been set apart for God's purposes. He says, I love you so much. I've chosen you to set you apart for my purposes. And I'm going to give you my grace, which will bring about peace because God is our maker and Jesus is our savior. And he's the one who sustains us. We could spend the whole time and this was just the greeting. See, that's why we can't cover it all. And I want to encourage you on your own to be reading this, to be studying it, to be wrestling with it, to immerse yourself in it, to, to chew on it, to feast on this book far beyond what we do on the weekend services. So today as we start in this day hike together this summer, I want to give you some historical background in the first part of our time together. For some of you, you're going to love this part. For some of you, you're going, oh, I've got to endure this. It'll just help kind of lay the foundation. I'm going to give you a lot of detailed background, history, uh, historical setting and context for this to help us understand who it was written to, when it was written, and those kind of things. So let's jump into that. Just this is kind of more the, the history and backdrop. The author is Paul. 
Now, many of us are familiar with Paul. His name was Saul by birth. He's given the name Saul. And he was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, his parents were Hebrews. He was a Roman uh, citizen, but he was a Pharisee. And he was like at the top of his class of the Pharisees. He studied under uh, Gamaliel or Gamaliel. And he was, he was like the the chief student of Pharisees. In fact, I think a very strong case could be built that in those times when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and it says they sent one to question him, it could very easily have been the Apostle Paul, at that point Saul, who was the one representing the Pharisees to come and, and confront Jesus. And then, and then as Christianity began to spread, Paul became the greatest opponent of Christianity. He went out to kill. He went out to beat up. He went out to arrest Christians. He wanted to eradicate the followers of Jesus off the face of the planet until one day he was on the road to Damascus to continue on to try and, to try and wipe out Christianity. And he met Jesus in this blinding light. And Jesus says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And then he was transformed. He becomes a leader of Christianity. He becomes the greatest proponent for Christianity. He goes around Asia Minor and throughout the known world planting churches. But when he comes to this book in Romans, the credential that he, he uses is not that I was a great leader of the Pharisees or I'm a great leader of the church or I'm a church planner. Look at his credentials that he uses. Paul, a servant of Christ, says, Jesus owns me. I am his after I discovered what he has done for me, I'm his servant, and I'm called to be an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this is important, this word gospel, because even in our time today, when we're just barely scratching the surface, this word is going to come up four or five times in these opening, uh, opening sentences of this book. The word gospel, most simply put, means good news. So it's, it's, very um, plausible and okay if you're reading scripture and you come to that word gospel and you insert the phrase good news, it's the same thing. To say, I was set apart for the good news of God. He says, that's what he called me to. He called me to preach good news, not condemnation, not bad news, but good news of God. So for the rest of our time today, when we see gospel, I'll say, now what is this? And you're going to say, okay, we're on it. It's an amazing thing. So he, he does this. And he says that God has called me. He's selected me for this. Right after that conversion experience that he had on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus in this blinding light. God uh, sends him to a guy named Ananias, and God gives him a little clue because everyone's scared. All the Christians are scared of this guy. And he says this to Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, Saul at the time, going to be Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So that's who is the author of this. It was written in roughly A.D. 56 to 58, and it was written uh, in Corinth, or from Corinth. And again, here's a little bit of detail that some of you don't really care about, but for some of you, you'll love this. How do we know that it's 56 to 58 A.D.? We know by not just biblical standards, but by um, history books, that Claudius was the emperor of Rome. And in around 49 or 50 A.D., Claudius expelled all the Jewish people out of Rome. He said all Jewish people have to leave Rome, and they're all kicked out. You may remember in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth, and he meets this nice couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. They're from Rome. They're Jews who have been kicked out of Rome by Claudius. So that happened sometime after 49 or 50. 
Well, Claudius dies in 54 AD. More accurately, his wife poisoned him. Which I'm not sure if that says more about him or his wife, but they had a tumultuous relationship, apparently. It ended abruptly. So he dies in 54. Nero becomes the emperor in 54 AD. Amongst his issues, Nero allows the Jewish people to come back into Jerusalem. So when Paul writes this letter in the closing uh, credits or, or greetings in Acts chapter 16, he says, and give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. So they've moved back to Rome. So this has happened sometime after 54 and before 64 when all of Rome was on fire and Nero blamed the Christians, that whole thing. So it happens in that region. And this whole book, we refer to it as a book, but the form is it's a letter. This thing called Romans was not intentionally written as a textbook. It was not intentionally written even as a theological treatise or some kind of systematic theology. Though there is a lot of theology in it, it was written as a letter from a person to people. And so there's more of a personal nature to it. What's interesting is that that you see when when Paul writes letters, and, and most of our New Testament are letters that he wrote, he doesn't really write them. He dictates them and someone else scribes them. And again, we see this in several of his letters, and we see this in Romans too. At the very end of Romans, uh, the guy who's writing all this down, and you can imagine what a task that was. As Paul's thinking, and his mind's just going, and the guy's just feverishly writing. That's why it explains when you're reading Romans, and these are run-on sentences, and sometimes it just stops with this thought hanging, and then sometimes it's way over here. It's because this guy's writing as fast as he can. And he kind of throws this little greeting in at the very end. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Is that, you don't know what I've been going through writing for this guy, but I want to say hi and God bless you all. So he writes this, and this letter, Romans, is different than all the other letters that Paul wrote. So like Galatians to the churches in the region of Galatia, or Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, or, or Colossians, or, or Philippians, you know, those letters. This one is far different. This one is less personal, and it's less specific. And here's the reason. All the other churches that Paul wrote letters to, he had planted those churches. He was the founder of those churches. He had spent time with them. He had discipled them. He had trained them. He could do a very clear SWOT analysis on them. He knew what their strengths were. He knew what their weaknesses were. He knew what their, their um, what's the O, opportunities are. He, he knew what the threats were. And so he could address those things specifically to certain people in those kind of situations. But with Romans in this church in Rome, Paul had not planted this church. He was not the founder of this church. In fact, he had never even gone to Rome, which raises the little rabbit trail question. Well, whoever started this church in Rome? Glad you asked. The best theory on this that I think is if you read Acts chapter 2, when there was the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which this is Pentecost Sunday, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, there's this list of people from every country in the whole known world. And it says in, in Jerusalem on that day, there were visitors from Rome, both Jewish and those who had converted to Judaism. So there are people from Rome in Jerusalem. They hear the message of Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophets and laws. They experience the power of the Holy Spirit. They go back to Rome with the message of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the church explodes. And now 27 years later, this whole idea that oh, the Bible didn't come until hundreds and thousands of years afterwards, not the case. This is 27 years later. Now Paul is writing this letter to these people he's never even met. And deep inside is this desire for him to go spend some time with them and to see them. In fact, he says that to them in, in um, 
he writes, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel. What's the gospel again? The good news. Preaching the good news of his son. And he's just gripped by this gospel. He's gripped by this good news. It owns him. In fact, he's dedicated his life to it. And, and he even says he feels obligated. There's, there's this, this gospel just got a hold of him. And preaching the good news of his son, is my, God is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. He says, my prayer is that it's God's will, that finally, I've been longing to see you. I've been wanting to come. In fact, he tells him, I've tried. It's not without effort. I mean, I have attempted to be there. Just two verses later in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. Here's the incredible thing about Paul. Some of you may remember in Ephesians, he says, make the most of every opportunity. Paul is a strategist. He plays chess, not checkers. He's always two or three moves ahead. And while he wants to go to Rome, Rome is not the end game for him. Because in that time, in that season, the greatest thinkers, the greatest poets, the greatest philosophers, and the greatest leaders of the Roman Empire were coming out of Spain. And he really wanted to get to Spain because Spain, as of yet, had not been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he thought, if I can just get to Spain, if I can reach them with this message of truth, if the power of the Holy Spirit could come on them, the kind of impact that would have in the Roman Empire would be enormous. So he wants to get to Rome, but he wants to get Rome so that he can get to Spain. He wants Rome to be his home base so he can reach a yet unreached territory. And he says this to them. But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Now, we don't know if he ever got to Spain. There's no evidence that he ever made it to Spain, but this was his plan. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. I want to come to Rome, he says. I want to set up my new home base there, and then I want to go into Spain, and I want to see an incredible work of God there. Now, this is again in around 57 AD. He has to go to Jerusalem first, and so he does. And um, if you want to write in the margins an incredible story, read like Acts 24 through 26. He goes to Jerusalem to deliver this gift from the other churches to help the struggling church in Jerusalem. Very benevolent, this church, very sharing and generous. He goes to Jerusalem, and he's arrested, and and there are people that are plotting to kill him, and to protect his life, he's taken to Caesarea, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea Maritimar. And he's there, and and, and, in Acts 24 through 26, it talks about what happens. And he's stuck in prison there, house arrest, for two years, and his desire is to get to Rome. So he's there. Here's what I love about Paul. He doesn't mind being arrested because it gives him more opportunities to share the good news about Jesus, whether it's with guards or when he's on trial, especially when he's on trial. Because when he's on trial, he basically just stands up and tells a story about Jesus and his conversion. And so he's there in in Caesarea, and he meets before Felix and, and has all this thing, has opportunity to share with him. Felix goes out of power. Festus comes in which is a cool Western name for the New Testament. Festus becomes the the ruler. He comes to Festus. He tells the whole story about Jesus, meets with him and his wife multiple times. And finally, when he's going to be turned back over to the Jews, he says, I appeal to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen, so he can do that. And Festus comes back and says, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Later, King Agrippa comes up, and he hears the message of Jesus through Paul. And Agrippa says, and this is my paraphrase of it. You can read it for yourself in, in Acts 26. Agrippa says to Festus, this guy's an idiot. 
if he, if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, he'd be free to go right now. But because he appeals to Caesar, now he's still captive and we're going to send him off to Rome. This is a very strategic move on Paul's part. It's like Br'er Rabbit. Oh, please, oh, please don't throw me in the briar patch. Please, oh, please don't let me go stand in front of Caesar and tell him about Jesus. Please, oh, please don't send me to Rome on the government's dime. Please, oh, please don't make me go to where I've been wanting to go for years. So, is that enough history? Okay, we've got to get into the scripture here or something. So that's kind of what's, what's going on. So all this has happened. Paul does eventually get to Rome uh, around uh, 60 to 62, and he comes out. And Anyway, so we'll get into that. We, we got into that three years ago. All right, so, so he writes this letter to these people he longs to see. And he's so gripped by this gospel. And he's so taken by the calling that God has put on his life. And he says, that is why, and we're going to verse, verse 15, that is why I am so eager to preach the, the good news also to you who are at Rome. He says, I, I, I want you, I want you to, to share with me and, and to, to hear again how good this message is about Jesus and his life. And then he begins to share, and we're going to really only look at two verses out of this. And in these two verses, the next two verses, it's really kind of, the, the quintessence of the gospel. It's, it's like he distills down and, and, and condenses all of the gospel into these two verses. And, and, and it's like he spends the rest of the book explaining, expanding upon, illustrating, showing how these two verses are lived out in life. And one of the verses in particular, the second of these two, one of these verses actually was the verse that revolutionized Martin Luther's life, that changed the whole course of Christian history, that changed John Wesley, that brought about the, rev, uh, the whole uh, revival. It's a powerful, powerful verse. And I want us to start off by just reading through these straight, and then we'll circle back around and take it apart a bit by bit. And this is what I would say. While Martin Luther challenges you to memorize the whole Bible or the whole book of Romans, I want to challenge you to start off with these two verses. Many of you grew up, memorized these verses. You know them inside and out. But these are so profound in the whole theology of the grace of Jesus Christ. So he says this in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's tear these apart. He starts off and says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He'll say, well, what, what's to be ashamed of? I mean, why would he say I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Remember the context. Remember who he's writing to. Remember what's going on. Remember where they are. I mean, from a human perspective, you think about this. He's writing to people in Rome, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. They are in the greatest city in the most uh, magnificent empire that the human race has ever known up to that point. They have Nero, who is their emperor, whom they worship with all the pomp and circumstance. And he comes with a message of some unknown carpenter from a podunk town called Nazareth who eventually was crucified, which in their mind was a sign of a curse. You couldn't have any more dramatic opposite than Nero, the emperor of Rome and the Roman Empire and all of his power, all of his you know, um, authority, all of his fame, and Jesus, this unknown carpenter who's crucified from Nazareth. And it, from human perspective, this would be very humbling in comparison to this. He says, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. And not only that, 
But as he has proclaimed the gospel, as he shared the gospel, it's brought about a great, great deal of difficulty in his life. He's been detained. He's been arrested. He's been uh, imprisoned. He's been imprisoned in the worst part of the prison. He's been mocked and ridiculed and slandered. He's had threats against his life, attempts against his life. He's been whipped, beaten, stoned, left for dead multiple times. This gospel has made his life miserable. So much for the American prosperity gospel theology. Just accept Jesus and life will be wonderful. Paul would not preach that. Not from a human perspective. Yes, better than ever, ever possible. But this gospel became very difficult for him in life. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why is that? Um, next slide. Because it is the power of God. Again, think about the contrast. There is no one or no thing on the planet more powerful than the emperor of the Roman Empire. That here is Nero with a wave of a hand, with a stroke of a pen, with a word from the tongue. Can have entire, entire regions killed if he wants to. And, and here is Nero in the Roman Empire who's taken over the known world. And, and even this little Nazareth in Jerusalem and, and Israel, they've been conquered. And they're under Roman rule, under the thumb of Rome. Rome has all the power, political power, military power, economic, financial power. They have the power because all the Roman roads are all throughout the known world and they control it all. There's so much power in Rome. And Paul comes along and says, yeah, Rome has its power. Nero has its power. The empire has its power. All that's got power. But all that pales in comparison to the power of my God. And he has no problem going toe-to-toe -to -toe with kings and officials and even Caesar himself to say, yeah, you think you've got all this power, but you don't know the power of God. This is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God, and only the power of God can break the chains that, that bind us. Only the power of God can heal our deepest wounds. Only the power of God can calm our, our most treacherous and tumultuous storms. Only the power of God can erase the guilt of our sin. Only the power of God can transform our lives. Only the power of God can conquer the ultimate enemy. We're not talking about on a military level. Only the power of God can conquer sin and death and the grave. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that can do things that the power of Rome never can do. And it is the power of God for the salvation. Now we're talking about eternity. All the military power of Rome cannot save you. Even though the emperor was often referred to as the son of God in worship, he cannot save you. All of their economic power, their military power, their social, their political, their world power does not compare to the power of God. It's the power for salvation. And then it gets good. The salvation of everyone. Now remember, Paul was Jewish. He was a Jewish man. He says, no longer is this just for Jewish people. No longer is it just for Israel, for God's chosen people. Yes, God chose them and he blessed them to be a blessing. He chose them to bring the Messiah through them so that everyone, now it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your record is. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It doesn't matter what your potential is. This is for everyone. This is an amazing thing. This is a new message. Because before it was for Jewish people, and especially for Jewish men, and especially for Jewish men who were like really righteous or Pharisees. 
But now he says this is for everyone. And it's for everyone who knows and keeps the law meticulously. This salvation is for everyone who prays hours every day, is disciplined in their Bible reading, who has memorized the book of Romans. This, this salvation is for everyone who is up to date on their tithe and owe nothing to God. This is for everyone who does good deeds and goes on mission trips. No, he says this is for everyone who believes. Not what you've done or what you're doing or what you've achieved. It's what you believe. What is the gospel? This is what makes this good news. It's that it's for everyone who believes. It's a, it's, a, it's a revolutionary thought, not only for Paul, but for everyone. He says, that's why I want everyone to be aware of this. I want them to know that this is the good news that applies to everyone, even to the Gentiles. So he goes on. Let's go back to that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jews. Jesus said, I came for the Jews. And then for the Gentiles, not because that there are any less loved by God, but he was coming to give to the Jew, Jewish nation, the, the Israelites, the, the chosen people, the Messiah, in order to be distributed to the world. Now, I find there's great irony and humor in this, that Paul was chosen to take this to the Gentiles. Paul, who was born, his parents, Hebrew of Hebrews, his parents were Hebrews. As a child, he was, he was like the top of the class. As I said, he was the, like the greatest of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, while they kept the law meticulously, the Pharisees loved to look down their nose at other people, even amongst their own people, to look down their noses at women, to look down their noses at, as, their, as their brothers who were not fully keeping the law the way they did. The Pharisees were very, very meticulous in memorizing all the laws. We're not ta just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about the 619 laws throughout Leviticus and elsewhere, as well as the strong prohibitions and their, their boundary laws that they made up. They kept all of them. And they would especially look down at non-Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, barbarians, Gentiles. There was this deep loathing. In a Pharisee's mind, they're thinking about a Gentile is that a Gentile was this unclean, uncircumcised Gentile dog. In best case scenario, they're fit for being fuel for the fires of hell. This goes beyond rivalry. There was utter disdain and disgust. They were repulsed by the idea of a Gentile. They didn't want to be associated with one. They didn't want to touch one. They wouldn't allow their, their robe to rub up against one. They had nothing to do with Gentiles. And I just find it humorous that God would look at Paul, who would have this attitude and say, hey, there's my guy. Let's choose him to go to the Gentiles. And when Paul met Jesus, his life was so radically transformed, the prejudice was taken away. And back in his introductory remarks, he says, through him, through Jesus, and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Here's Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Jewish through and through, born and bred. I mean, just, and he says, my calling is to the Gentiles. And then a little, little side note here. The apostleship to call people from, all, from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That phrase right there, the obedience that comes from faith, that warrants a sermon in and of itself. We don't have time to do that. Chew on that one. Dig into that one. What does that mean? What does that look like? So here's Paul. And he says, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. And then we come to verse 17. Now listen, verse 17 is the verse. 
Verse 17 is the one that changed Martin Luther's life and altered all of Christianity. Verse 17, the truth behind it, is what changed John Wesley's life. Verse 17 is what Paul spends the next 16 chapters, 15 and a half chapters, explaining and illustrating and showing. Verse 17 is so profound. It starts off and says, for in this what? We're losing you. For in this good news, a righteousness. Now, this is a key word. Because righteous, just, righteousness is a theme, a major theme of the book, of this letter. 60 times, more than 60 times, he's going to come back to this whole thing of righteousness, of being just, of being righteous. What it simply means is this, having a right standing before God. That's what righteousness is. I have a right standing before my God. There's no outstanding warrants. There's no unpaid debts. There's no fees. There's no liens. There's no limitations. There's no liabilities. There's no prohibition. That I am in a right standing with God. There's no distance there. There's nothing I owe him. There's nothing I'm ashamed of. I am standing in a right standing with my God, the holy, righteous God. That's what righteousness is. And he talks about this a lot. We'll see this a lot throughout this letter, okay? He says, we're in the good news. A righteousness, a right standing. Read these yellow words for me. Say it again. This is going to be on the quiz next week. A righteousness from God. This is not our doing. This isn't because of what we've achieved. This isn't because of how we've performed. This isn't because of how disciplined we've been. This isn't because of, of what we've you know, gone out to, to prove our worth. This is a right standing with God that is from God, and it's revealed by God. Okay, so it's revealed this we didn't make up. This we didn't come up with on our own. God reveals this to us, and he reveals it in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and then he reveals it within our heart. He revealed it to Martin Luther. He revealed it to Saul, who became Paul. He revealed it to John Wesley. He revealed it to us, that this righteousness is from God, and he, he reveals it to us. Not only that, but he says, a righteousness, a right standing, that is, read these two words, by faith. Say it again. By faith. by faith. From first to last. This is so important. This is what changed Martin Luther. He realized if this is true, this whole thing of paying for your sins or working for your sins or keeping the law, this is what changed Paul's life. If it's by faith, it's not about what I've done. So there came this, this understanding, this sola fide, faith alone, not by your works, not by your good deeds. And it's from first to last, from the start to the finish, from A to Z, soup to nuts, the whole thing. It's not about what you do. Now I want you to say these four yellow words, okay? From God, by faith. Say it again. That is going to be on the quiz next week. I will ask you next week, what are the four words? You might want to write those down. From God, by faith. That's the incredible message of the gospel. That there's this right standing that comes from God, and it's, it's acquired by faith, not by anything that we have done. It's an amazing deal, and especially for Paul, because Paul had spent his whole life learning, following the law. He was a, a, an expert in the law. But when it comes to the law, the law is about what I do, what I must do. What I've got to do to achieve, what I've got to do to be accepted, what I've got to do to be forgiven, what I've got to do, it's all about what I've got to do. And Paul had spent his whole life 
following that whole concept. And then he discovered this truth, the good news, the gospel. It's about what God has done, what he's already done in Jesus Christ. That it's, the work has already been done. It's received. It's a gift. You just say, yes, I'll take it. It's by faith. This faith where we lean in and we put all our trust, not in ourselves, but in what Jesus has done for us. It's to bet our life and to stake our eternity, not on how good we are or how good we're going to be or how it's going to be different this time, but on who Jesus is and what he's done, this righteousness that's from God and is by faith. Five or six years later, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi, and he circles back around to this. In this letter, he talks about all of these this, you know, credentials on a human side of what he's done and why, from a human perspective, he ought to be like the superstar spiritually. And then he says this in Philippians. He says, what is more, I consider everything, all of my list, my credentials, a lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And the word actually translated is much stronger. It's a word you might hear on a farm in Linden. We're not going to say it here. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The right standing that comes from God and is by faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what gripped his life, and that's what he was convinced every single person needed to hear. Many of us were raised in church, traditional churches. And we grew up singing a hymn. This hymn said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And some of us, when we sang that line, this is what we were thinking. Jesus' blood and my righteousness. Yeah, what Jesus did on the cross is important, but I've got to do some things too here to prove that I'm worthy of this. That's not what this is saying. It's not what the scripture is saying. My hope is built not on anything I've done, nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean, complete trust, faith on Jesus' name. Verse four, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in whose? His righteousness alone. Faultless to stand, a right standing, righteous from God by faith before the throne. The good news that it's from God and it's by faith. Verse 17 again says, For in the gospel, right standing from God is revealed, a righteousness, right standing that is by faith from first to last, just as it was written. And then he quotes this verse out of Habakkuk or Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous, the right ones, the just, the righteous will live by faith. Now here's a little side note that is cool but doesn't really apply to a whole lot. Three times in the New Testament, this verse, this obscure verse from this minor prophet that you haven't read in years, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Here in Romans 1, in Galatians 3, and in Hebrews chapter 10. And the book of Romans talks about how to be righteous. The book of Galatians talks about how to live. And the book of Hebrews talks about faith. 
And he just comes back to this again and again and again. He says, this isn't just about your ticket into heaven. This is how we live every single day. We live leaning and trusting in the righteousness of Jesus every day. The faith that leads to obedience. This is how we live every single day. You know, on more than one occasion, I've met with people as they're really facing death's door. People that have been in the church for years at times. And on more than one occasion, I've had a very similar conversation where someone, as they're coming to, to death's door, they'll say, Pastor, I just, I just don't know. I hope I've done enough. I, I hope I get in. Listen, if you ever, if you ever say, I hope that someday I get into heaven, I hope I've done enough, you have not yet understood the gospel. Because it is from God by faith, not by what you've done. You can never do enough to get in. Spiritually speaking, you suck. <laughs> but that ne that's next week's sermon. Okay. All right. It's going to be a good one. Don't miss it. You will never be able to do enough to get in. You're not good enough. You can't be worthy enough. And if you were, there would be no reason for Jesus to have come. I know this kind of dates me, but a few years ago, John Mayer sang this song in the chorus. said, because I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still, verdictless life. And then his chorus repeats, am I living it right? Am I living it right? When we understand that our right standing is from God and by faith, then we're living it right. Then we're living in the gospel. We're living in the grace. We're living in the truth. We're living in the good news. And when we're living right in the righteousness of God that comes by faith, we're no longer a criminal with a record where a child who is received. We're no longer guilty. We are forgiven and we are innocent. We're no longer sinners. Now we are saints called to be set apart to God. We're no longer enemies of God. We are now become friends. We are no longer slaves to fear. We become a child of God. What are the four words? Yeah, you need to practice that. <laughs> That's the essence of the gospel.